You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, this morning, uh, lawmakers began debating the fate of a bill which would allow counties greater authority over online hosting platforms. Companies like Expedia and Airbnb have fueled a runaway vacation rental issue across the state. HPR's Ku'uve Hirishi has been monitoring the hearing and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Just a quick update on that House bill. A 460 was a gut-and-replace bill that pretty much emerged out of concerns uh, over COVID-19 and the lack of enforcement or potential lack of enforcement of regulations dealing with short-term rentals. And so that bill was considered this, this morning by the Senate Ways and Means Committee. It's been on uh, scheduled for hearings the last I think, three times and has been deferred, uh, as I understand it, from talking to lawmakers. Um, they are trying to work out the details uh, on this form that's going to be a place of stay declaration form that's used uh, by state and county authorities once uh, inter-island or not inter-island travel but trans-pacific travel starts up again and so that is was at the uh, top of the agenda this morning on the senate ways and means committee but regulation overall of of this industry has really come out of the coronavirus pandemic and even more so now that hawaii plans to reopen august 1st and the industry all but shut down under emergency health restrictions issued by the state in late march there were exceptions for essential workers in certain counties maui and hawaii county did allow uh, short-term rentals to operate when catering to essential workers, um, which has, you know, uh, sort of comes with some loopholes, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, county authorities said they've issued several notices of violation throughout the pandemic, uh, but for the most part, everyone complied. Uh, there were a few bad apples and maybe high-profile one uh, heard about on the Big Island with Carbon Nation, right, that group of 21 or so uh, folks were arrested. The cult. Yes, the cult. The Carbon and, cult. <laughs> and later a return to their homes. Uh, those, that sort of, you know, hearing about that if you're a concerned citizen, oh, there's these loopholes in, in the system. And then thinking about the fears of, of catching coronavirus, I think those two factors really began to highlight these enforcement issues. And uh, so counties have always taken the, the lead on regulating the industry, um, but anyone will tell you it's it's hard to regulate a sort of decentralized structure when you've got so many players, right? You've got hosts, you've got online hosting platforms, state tax officials taking in revenue, law enforcement, county authorities, and very little data sharing or communication amongst these players. And so Michael Yee, planning director for Hawaii County, says short-term operators were able to rent units to essential workers traveling to the Big Island during the pandemic, but even that was hard for the county to enforce. There were a lot of things that are always in the gray, right? Such as what happens if it was a family member? What happens if it was somebody who was claiming to be a family member of the vacation rental owner, right? <laughs> And how do you take a, you know, you can't perform a blood test on the spot when you're saying, hey, who are you? And they say, hey, I'm a relative of the owner. I guess you could get the ID and try to figure it out. But it becomes difficult when people realize there could be some loopholes. So two things are, are uh, happening right now to close those loopholes. One is what we mentioned earlier, House Bill 460, uh, which was considered by the Senate Ways and Means Committee this morning, and that bill would essentially allow greater control uh, for the counties 
over the sites that are or the hosts that are put on these online platforms. So right now, there's very little communication there. It's usually the, the county will see a potentially illegal site or illegal host, contact the host and or contact the platform to try to get that removed. And that's how the process works. Uh, what's going to happen with uh, House Bill 460 is it's going to be on the online hosting platform, their Kuleana, to check in with the counties to make sure that the hosts that are being advertised are actually hosts that are uh, in the registry for that particular county. So that way we don't have illegals sort of pro- proliferating there. Um, but another element of the bill that really came out of procedures during COVID-19 was this the place of stay declaration form, which I, which I mentioned earlier. And that is something that uh, some in the community have said, you know, it's in, in, very invasive uh, and something that we're not sure we want to have on the books after COVID, right? Because right now we're putting that in place, but the bill as is written right now, there's no sunset date on that on that particular element. Um, Matt Middlebrook, Airbnb's policy head for the state of Hawaii, uh, of course, against uh, this particular House bill, uh, but open to other regulation. Here's Middlebrook. You know, everybody that comes to the island having to put their their names and destinations, it, it's just a it's just a really deep invasion of privacy to both visitors and local homeowners who are renting their their home. And this just um, seems like unnecessary regulation that is only going to continue to to hamper the state's comeback uh, economically from the pandemic. It just seems unnecessary. So Airbnb at the same time, and this is the uh, sort of other thing that's happening. We got the state level regulation, but then at the county level, we've heard uh, two announcements over the last week from Kauai County Mayor Derek Kawakami, uh, who's entered Kauai County into a memorandum of uh, understanding an agreement basically with Airbnb, online uh, platform host, as well as um, Expedia, which runs uh, VRBO, Verbo. Um, and what's going to happen there is it's he's pretty much setting up that same communication and data sharing that, you know, that is being sought at the state level, but directly between the county and uh, Airbnb and the county and Expedia. So it's going to be up to these online hosting platforms to do the same thing check in to make sure that the rentals that are being hosted on their online platforms are also on the the legal uh, checkbox on the side of uh, the county. And so Mayor uh, Kawakami's, you know, talks about the struggle that's always been there for counties and figuring out how to enforce this exactly and who to work with. Um, But in, you know, light of not having this policy at the state level, uh, Kawakami said, you know, we need to get stuff done, especially now that we're talking about reopening. This is a big industry, according to Middlebrook, $5 billion industry before uh, COVID-19. And so Kawakami is trying to uh, make this collaboration work in order to help Kauai come back out of this. You know, it's best to have collaboration because then we don't get tied up in years of litigation where nothing happens and we continue to get complaints from constituents about um, people renting out properties um, that are in the middle of neighborhoods. We don't, and we continue to have a housing shortage for local people. So, you know, either approach was going to be fine with us. We just wanted the one with the path of least resistance and the ability to get out and actually accomplish what we're trying to accomplish sooner rather than later. 
so those uh, the MOUs between Kauai County and those online hosting platforms are going to go into effect over the next two to four months. Uh, Kaina Hall, planning director for Kauai County, uh, says that uh, it's going to be up to the online hosting platform to reach out to its hosts to make sure they know which fields they'll need to put in. What will be done is uh, actual tax map keys. So the actual location, which has always been a sort of sticky issue mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to regulation, will be uh, up there and available, and it's going to be up to the online hosting platform to make sure that these hosts uh, come online and have their, you know, their uh, TMKs in there. If not, by the end of uh, this in sort of uh, rolling out of this MOU, they will be delisted and removed. Right. So you got to make sure that the information is correct and people right. are on the up and up. Exactly. And this verification process that's never really uh, that's been hard. I, I don't think there was a there's a central system for any of this and so counties have been trying to figure out how they can do it at their own level. It's interesting because I think COVID-19 has certainly brought these online platforms to their knees because (laughs) everything came to a screeching halt when all the vacation rentals were just like shut out like nope can't operate. Right. And uh, uh, Middlebrook had mentioned that this same arrangement that they've had with Kauai County is something that they've reached out to Honolulu to uh, check in on and Maui as well. So we may see more of these MOUs in the future. Right, because I think uh, Maui is in in discussions now. Uh, Honolulu, I checked this morning, and they said nothing recent. So well, we'll see what lawmakers do. And so the vote is supposedly tomorrow. Tomorrow, morning. okay. <laughs> Put off for another day. But thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HBR's Kuvehiro Ishii talking enforcement of online hosting platforms and vacation rentals. You can find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. And now it's time to hear from the BBC with the latest pandemic news. The United States strikes a deal to buy almost the entire global supply of a COVID treatment drug, and Uganda opens its borders to allow thousands of refugees into the country. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday, the 1st of July. I'm Jackie Leonard. The United States strikes a deal to buy almost the entire global supply of a COVID treatment drug. The aircraft manufacturer Airbus plans to lay off thousands of workers and Uganda reopens its border to allow thousands of displaced people to seek refuge. The United States has struck a deal to buy almost the entire global supply of a drug proven to be effective against coronavirus for the next three months. Remdesivir, made by the California-based company Gilead, was initially developed to treat Ebola. The U.S. Vice President Mike Pence says it's part of a wider plan to fight the coronavirus. We're in a much better place because of the availability of what's known as therapeutics or medicines to treat people that have contracted the coronavirus and are experiencing uh, severe symptoms, uh, whether it be uh, the availability of remdesivir, which we're distributing another tranche this week, uh, the use of blood plasma, steroid treatments, and, and also we continue to hear very hopeful signs about the continuing, continuing progress for developing a vaccine. Data suggests taking remdesivir can cut recovery time by about four days, but there's still no clinical trial data to suggest it improves survival from coronavirus. Gilead will charge over $2,300 for a typical treatment in the U.S. and other developed countries. It'll sell for less in poorer countries where generic drug makers are allowed to produce it. 
The Democratic hopeful for the White House, Joe Biden, has said he won't hold campaign rallies while the United States is in the grip of the coronavirus. He said he was following doctors' orders for himself and the country. President Trump has already held campaign gatherings, including in Oklahoma, where infections are surging. Mr Biden has strongly criticised the president over his handling of the pandemic. The European aircraft maker Airbus has announced plans to cut its workforce by 15,000. The company said it would implement the cuts by summer next year. Here's Andrew Walker. Airbus said in a statement that commercial aircraft activity had dropped by 40% in recent months. It said air traffic was not likely to get back to pre-pandemic levels before 2023, and perhaps not for two years after that. A total of 10,000 jobs is to go in France and Germany. The business in Britain and Spain will see employment cut by a combined figure of more than 2,500. Lebanon's only international airport in Beirut has reopened after being closed for more than three months because of the pandemic. Martin Patience reports. For now, the airport is operating at 10% of its normal capacity. Passengers will be tested for COVID-19 upon arrival and be required to quarantine at home if they have the disease. While Lebanon has largely avoided the worst of coronavirus, the lockdown here has hastened the country's economic collapse. The leader of the Australian state of Victoria has warned of a possible statewide lockdown if an outbreak of coronavirus in Melbourne isn't brought under control. Daniel Andrews urged residents of 36 neighbourhoods where tight restrictions have been reimposed to follow the rules. If we all work together, if we all follow the rules, then we will, we will beat this and we will be able to bring some stability to those hotspots, drive down case numbers and then resume our program of cautious easing. Spain and Portugal have reopened their joint border more than three months after it was closed due to the pandemic. Travel restrictions elsewhere in the European Union were lifted last week. Thousands of displaced people in the Democratic Republic of Congo will be allowed to enter Uganda on humanitarian grounds. The arrivals will spend 14 days quarantined in an isolation centre 13 kilometres from the border. The Indian Prime Minister has said the country is at a critical juncture as the number of coronavirus cases continues to rise. Unlike many other countries, India is easing its lockdown before COVID-19 cases have peaked. But one of India's largest cities, Chennai, is refusing to relax restrictions. Here's Rahul Tandon. Chennai's hospitals, which are amongst the best in India, are now full of grieving relatives. Dr K. Sentil is the president of the government's doctors' association in the city. The death rate is rising fast this last 15 days. There is a surge in Chennai and a lot of uh, sudden death cases. That is, they come with breathlessness. And those people succumb in a span of two, three hours. A mayor in Colombia has personally driven his son, nephew and a third man to a police station after discovering the trio had broken coronavirus rules. The mayor explained he'd received reports the men were in a house together drinking alcohol. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
some of the most critical issues are being heard in the legislative the legislature's compressed session. And one issue that is of great concern is that of inter-island shipping, a proposal to try and remedy a situation with the ailing inter-island Young Brothers Barge Service stalled in the House yesterday. This morning, we talked about this latest development with Senate Majority Leader Kalani English, who represents the neighbor islands who depend on the vital service. You know, the Senate passed a subversion, attempted to mitigate that and, you know, almost create like a receivership for the state for a little while. In other words, we took it out of the jurisdiction of the PUC, gave some direct subsidies uh, for the Molokai route, Molokai Lanai, because those depend completely on it, on the barge, and then also did things like, you know, have them negotiate with livestock uh, producers to move their cattle and their other livestock, and then, you know, put some prohibitions in, like, cannot uh, pay your parent company, you cannot uh, give raises and bonuses to your executives. That's what we sent over to the House. And then I think uh, I heard last late last evening that the House actually deferred the, the measures. So I'm, you know, I'm not sure what the House position is on it. I, I think theirs is that they just don't want to do it. That's what I'm understanding right now. I represent the largest geographical district in Hawaii. You know, it's the islands of Molokai, Lanai, and Kaho'olawe. And then all of East and upcountry Maui. So the areas that are most vulnerable are Molokai and Lanai because they completely depend on this service to bring in all of their supplies. And there's a there's a thing called less than container loads, LCLs. And less than container loads are when somebody needs to ship, they're shipping a car over, or they're shipping other supplies over, or they they bought a table and chairs, and they need to get it over to Molokai from wherever or Lanai. So these less than container loads are what everyday people use, and that's very important. So otherwise, you know, to move something, you'd have to buy a whole container, right? So they aggregate things into one container, and they charge you your cubic meter, your spaces that you use. This is where it's the lifeline for those islands, and we, we need the service. So that's why I'm watching it very carefully and seeing how, how it moves through the house. I mean, we sent a version over um, We'll see what they do. I understand, like I said, they deferred it yesterday, but they may come back with another version or they may come back with another proposal. I don't know. There is some concern out there in the public because we saw what happened with the containers, and I know they're still investigating that to try and figure out what caused that. Was the company trying to cut corners? We saw the issue with the cattle that died on the one recent shipment. You're just wondering what's going on, and I, I know they have asked for a huge rate hike. That's on the PUC side. So. You know, the PU side regulates the company, and maybe maybe the PUC, you know, over the years has not been able to effectively exercise oversight because, gee, they're so overburdened and so swamped with things like, you know, regulating tour vans, one or two utilities, mm-hmm. right? But tour vans, where every tour van that goes everywhere goes before them. So it's like you get stuck in all of these super small micro things and you kind of lose track of the really big things. So I think their PUC has some... Um, culpability in this, you know, I don't know about their oversight, and but here we are, right, and the company is not, uh, I would say, poorly managed, has been over the last couple of years, and so that's why we're in this situation, but it's not completely their fault. Other companies were allowed to come in and, um, you know, cherry pick, so while they were required to provide service to Molokai and Lanai and other areas where they actually lose money, they weren't, other, another company was allowed to take the more profitable routes and not required to do these routes too. So I think it goes all the way back to that decision, you know, many years ago. 
and it's complex. There's many moving parts. Right. So you're trying to find a solution that's fair, but will still allow the cargo to go back and forth. Absolutely. And it's very interesting. You know, I've had discussions. You know, you have to meet people where they are, right? So people send stuff on Facebook or Messenger. And I actually had one guy out of Lanai, you know, with his ideological beliefs saying, don't give them any money at all. And we're like, okay, but you know that you will not get your food, right? I, th- I think we should have less government. I said, okay, but let's logically break this down. So you're saying that you would rather go without food and your ideology than, you know, have the basic supplies. And then when that goes away, you're going to be calling me or on Facebook or wherever and saying, how come I don't have delivery of food? Same with Molokai, you know, the Molokai Chamber of Commerce opposed this. The Cattlemen's Association opposed it, too. I mean, it's, what is the old saying? Cut off your nose to spite your face. So, you know, we're dealing with some very myopic views that cannot see the big picture and, you know, can't grasp that this is a, a need and we have to provide the service somehow. So, yeah, we're looking at all the angles and looking at everything from, you know, how, how do we, if they do go out, if Young Brothers does uh, go bankrupt, you know, how who provides a service the next three days because every couple of days there's a barge going to Molokai and to Lanai. This is also a statewide issue. You know, many people, many legislators here and people in the general public thought it was just a Molokai and Lanai issue, but Young Brothers services Kauai, services the Big Island, and services Maui Island, so it's a statewide concern and statewide issue. So this is this has been um, something that's taken up a lot of time, and you know I'm willing to put in the time and put in the effort because it's so important for all of us in Hawaii that we have some form of service to all of these ports as well as less than container load available. There are a couple other issues that are simmering. The issue of opening up the road to Hana. Mm-hmm. DOT yes. has concerns because they're saying, well, you know, we should open it. We don't want to jeopardize federal funding. So DOT, um, you know, we have multiple jurisdictions and multiple issues, right? DOT closed the road because they only they only can look at road issues. They were able to close it because we had literally major parts of it falling into the ocean. Bridges that are at imminent failure, that means I go across them very quickly every time hmm. I drive it. Um, imminent failure means it could collapse at any moment, right? Some of them 120 years old. The youngest is probably from 1920, so about 100 years old. And they need to be made uh, stable again. So sides of the mountains were falling down. So what the Department of Transportation did was, you know, instead of saying, okay, if we do it the way we normally would do it, uh, we would be here for five years and this would probably be a lot worse. Or we could limit, they made an accommodation for local traffic, saying, okay, only local traffic in or out. And just with the lessening of the traffic, they're able to get all that work done in the last couple of months. But they can only close the road for road-related issues, right? So after they did all of the work, they, they were saying, okay, we're ready to reopen. The governor and others have the ability to say that, well, we need to close it for health issues. We need to close it for other emergencies. But DOT cannot do that. So, you know, that's why the, the appeal was made to the governor to keep the road closed a little bit longer because we are working with East Maui community, um, and I have to say it's a large area than just Hana. So it's from what's called Honopo, or American name for it is Twin Falls. Honopo sounds so much nicer, yeah? Honopo all the way to Ulupalakua, and that encompasses population-wise, I would say upwards of seven, 8,000 people, whereas Hana itself, Hana Town, has about 800 people. The areas right around Hana Town has about another 400. So you see the, the amount of people involved. And the concern there is we don't have the, the we do not have the medical ability to handle even 
one coronavirus case. Or, so such limited medical capabilities and the remoteness of it makes it extremely dangerous if anybody does get sick. And so we need to put in the strictest provisions to help preserve the health and the well-being of that side of the island. And you're waiting That's, to hear back from the governor? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've heard informally, but, you know, we're waiting for the, the formal um, declaration. You know, my, my point is that the Department of Transportation was able to do that at the same time that we needed to do. There was a uh, global pandemic. So that things coincided, right? We talked to the park system, um, and they needed some time to do some repairs, fix everything. And there was nobody coming out anyway, so they closed down as well. Different different jurisdictions did different um, took different action. Okay, so we'll see how this gets resolved uh, with the governor's decision on it. Like I said, we're working on a traffic management plan on that side, which is very unique. So we're trying to figure out a way we can manage the flow of traffic. We cannot we cannot tell anybody they cannot go, but we can set up a reservation system. For example, we can say that okay, you know, based on the flow today, if you leave at this time, it's a much better flow. We're trying to create a better experience for our people first, and then everybody else that comes out to visit. So with this type of system, you know, you don't have 20,000 cars a day heading down the road um, at the same time and causing traffic jams uh, on a two-lane road on the side of a mountain on the cliff uh, with, you know, 57 cars in the front of you one way and 80 cars coming the other way, and it's complete gridlock because they don't know how to drive that road. Such are the complicated transportation, health, and economic issues that Senator Jay Kalani English is tracking. The majority leader represents Lanai, Molokai, and Maui, whose issues of isolation are often not easy to navigate. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from University Health Partners of Hawaii, the faculty practice of the John A. Burns School of Medicine. In-person and telemedicine services include family medicine, internal medicine, and behavioral health. UHPHawaii.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marks Cafe, with the opening up of the economy dependent on COVID-19 testing, how can Hawaii keep up? We'll talk to local tech firm Oceanet, who has a novel approach to testing that has the potential to scale across U.S. markets and beyond. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. When a gunman opened fire at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, Guillermo Glenn was there. It was a very traumatic scene. The ideology behind this attack is linked to other violent events. Nobody put all these incidences together and say, hey, this is something that we should be aware of. Connecting the dots of domestic terrorism on the next Reveal. Tonight at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening with safety in mind on July 16th, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community with new weekend evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. This morning on The Long View, our contributing political analyst Neil Milner spotlights a national panel that surveys voters to look at changing viewpoints over time. Good morning, Neil. Hi. So, yeah, this is an interesting panel that you came across. Yeah, I've talked about the panel before, this uh, study group that does it's a big national group that has a panel. That means they go back and talk to the same people every time they do a survey, and it's pretty big. It's about... 6,000, so that means they don't literally interview them face-to-face, but phone interviews and other kinds of interviews. And uh, this is their latest on how people react to democratic norms and how strong do, uh, is, uh, are the feelings in, in regard to democratic norms, following up on a couple of other surveys. So that's the kind of mixed news that you get from this survey. Yeah, but it, it is uh, interesting to track uh, how, you know, current events affects, uh, you know, their thoughts and the thought process. Well, that's right. Uh, there's, uh, there's an upside and downside to that. The downside is the poll was conducted and, and completed just before the quarantine went into effect. So what they say about the effect of the, of the quarantine on the results uh, and, the reflect, and the effect of the uh, uh, protest on results is a little bit speculative, although it makes a lot of sense. So um, what they show is that, you know, there are certain vulnerabilities here in the way people think about democracy. When you ask them specific questions about strong leaders and so on, uh, and that it's quite possible that the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter protest and particularly the November election will be affected, uh, will affect and will be affected more by these findings. So um, what, did you, what did you find uh, looking at this, you know, uh, on the long view? Well, the first thing you find is that people, as usual, have very strong, favorable opinions toward democracy in the abstract, and that doesn't vary by party. It's up in the 80 percent in the same way. But then when you ask questions about specific things, like under what situations would you let a president uh, are you okay with the president uh, bypassing Congress to make decisions? Under what situations do you support a kind of a strong man? They use uh, particular examples about that. And, and, and under what situations would you be okay if a president decided to try to call off the election after it happened because he didn't win, uh, he uh, uh, thinks that there was a violation, there was voter fraud, and so on. That's when it starts to break down uh, uh, a whole lot, that you have, what, and also about violence. You, you, now, what I'm talking about here are minorities, but sizable and worrisome minorities, that you find a sizable minority of people who are okay if the president acts on his own, if he thinks that the majority of the American people are in favor of that. Um, you find them feeling that way about other kinds of issues, and you find that it varies by partisanship. Um, and so right now Republicans would feel like that more than others. Um, you find that both parties, but particularly people who identify with Republicans, uh, see the possibility of it being okay if the president doesn't leave office after an election because he says there is voter fraud or if a president 
doesn't leave office because he won the majority but not the Electoral College. So all of these things say that they're worrisome. The other worrisome thing is that partisanship trumps uh, positions on um, norms, on democratic norms. That is, that people divide about how they feel. But the fundamental thing is that the, that people have very generally positive views about democratic norms, but when you start pushing them on specific things, would it be okay to do this, would it be okay to do that, then there are more signs of people willing, of a sizable majority willing to support things like uh, a strong man acting without congressional oversight. Um, and uh, and so those things are those things turn out to be very uh, very very important. Plus the fact, and this showed up in an earlier study that they did, there is about five to ten percent of people who are pretty okay with the possibility of using violence in certain political situations. I say pretty okay because it's a little bit inconsistent and it's softer than other opinions but when i talked about this in an earlier survey as they pointed out that's a lot of people i mean if you take five to ten percent of the of the voting public that's i don't know twenty 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 five million people so their conclusion is we have to be careful that things look a little bit good in general but they look kind of weak in uh... in a particular sort of way that people are um, people are not, when push comes to shove, are less supportive of democracy than they claim they are when you ask them general feel-good questions, and that what we're going through right now could very much exacerbate that sort of thing. So I guess from a social science and maybe a citizen standpoint, it's going to be really interesting to see how these opinions would change between now and the election. I don't know if, the, if this group is going to follow up that, that quickly. But that, I think, is an important message to carry away from here. We're in unprecedented, uh, unprecedented times in terms of things being fraught, in terms of people thinking that if the other party wins, it's an existential stre- uh, threat. We've got all these racial issues going. It doesn't strike them and it doesn't strike me, that that would make these findings any more optimistic. Well, you know, we are in such strange times, and the divisions uh, are just, oh, my gosh, you know, the, the, the dis- it, it, those feelings run deep. Well, they run deep, and they, and they run comprehensively. Um, and um, we have to remember that some of these feelings that run deep and uh, are feelings that you can get overly optimistic about when you look at the uh, attitudes that have changed in regard in, in regard to uh, racism and Black Lives Matter as a result of the uh, of the demonstrations. That I, right now, and I would say it's on the surface. Right now, people have made incredibly large changes in their attitudes about these sorts of things. But at the same time, and this survey shows the same thing, that, um, that white resentment, people who have a kind of racial resentment, whiteness, and a sort of identifying characteristic with a white identity, are, are more likely to uh, accept a strong man to have sort of anti-democratic values. That also includes, if you're a cultural conservative in that, within that group, it's 
it's the same thing. So part of what's going to play out in this election is the extent to which those racial changes, which in a sense go against what uh, Donald Trump has been trying to do in appealing to his base, whether those racial changes are strong enough to uh, limit the impact of the effect of whiteness identifying as white on elections. And I've talked about this before, and people, they, they go nuts when I, when I point the data out to them, but it's really clear that, if, that, uh, that a sense of white identity is increasing. It's increasing in many different ways, and the more you see yourself identifying as white, the more likely you are to have these other kinds of values associated with authoritarianism and, and so on. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the election is, you know, still a few months away yet, and, and uh, pe- people are wondering, well, what else could happen, right? Yeah, well, don't ask me. I know. <laughs> I don't, I'm having enough trouble getting through the present. I don't do much about predicting the future. And anybody who's in this kind of pundit business who speaks confidently right now, it would be best that you change the station. Oh, there you go. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. All right. We have been talking with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and our contributing editor of our segment, The Long View. Our reality check segment today features a wayfinding story by Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Honoré. He's all over transportation issues. Good morning, Marcel. You there? Yes. Can okay. you hear me? Hey, I can hear you now. Okay. You know, with these COVID times, I mean, there are more people out there walking, biking, you name it. They're out there. Yeah, that, that's right. So if, if you've been out and about, you've seen that there are a lot more people out and about since the pandemic hit. And the challenge with that, of course, is that, um, you know, health officials are warning us, uh, advising us, I should say, that, we, you know, we should uh, keep keep uh, physically distant, right? Keep mm-hmm. your distance. And there's only so much uh, sidewalk space, curb space. Uh, we've got a city that is, you know, very much uh, geared towards cars. So it's kind of like, well, what to do about that as, as you're seeing more people kind of uh, just out on foot. And, it, you know, it just happens back in, in November uh, there was a, a project that a bunch of high school students at Farrington High School with, with their engineering program, uh, they partnered with the State Department of Health and uh, some city officials, and they created what's called a quick build project um, to do these these uh, bulb out curb extensions uh, along King Street and some intersections there to basically make it easier uh, for pedestrians to cross, safer to cross in a neighborhood that's seen a lot of uh, car on pedestrian crashes. And, you know, this was done in consultation with a lot of people in the community. And uh, it was a relatively cheap project. And it involves just a lot of paint and, uh, you know, those plastic poles. They're called bollards, you know, and uh, some design work. 
and compared to a lot of the um you know the the the, the more um you know pavement and uh installing installing new curbs and asphalt and things like that which can run in the millions uh this is a relatively cheap uh kind of a, a an alternative right uh, so yeah, what what the column basically does is it, it's it's bringing up how these might be um, some relatively inexpensive and and more swift ways to address some of the new demand that you're seeing out there in this in this post COVID world. Right, and there was an experiment that they're trying um, that they started in Waikiki where they closed all of Kawakawa and it's uh, basically turned over to pedestrians and skateboarders and cyclists and uh, it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> Yeah, you're seeing, um, you know, you're seeing hundreds of people out there. Uh, I was just out there on on Sunday morning to check it out, and the demand is huge. And it's interesting, you know, the um, the, the only emails I've gotten so far, are people are kind of concerned that this could be kind of a, a super spreader kind yes. of a thing. Um, but I, I and and it's good they were handing out masks and everything. But I think what that shows is that yeah, you've got a lot of people that were willing to to just go out there because there there is that demand uh, for this kind of a, of a, a you know, a project or a way to, to use the streets more uh, beyond just uh, just cars and, and vehicles. So if there's maybe a way to expand that and do that in these these projects, um, you know, I was talking to some some local transportation advocates and and some of these things have been certainly been uh, controversial. You look in in Chinatown, there was there was a lot of controversy with, with some of the bulb out designs there. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're saying, look, if people don't like these um you know they're, they're relatively inexpensive and you you can you can take them down uh you know they're, they're confident that people would use them when you see what's what's happening right now uh but but that yeah it's not it's not the end-all be-all if you were to try these these quick build projects yeah well you got to try something during these strange times and i know the city's reevaluating the the uh, open street thing in in uh, Kalakau. i think they were to meet yesterday on it so we'll see you know what uh uh what happens in the future if they try it again and try to do it as a regular a, a regular thing? Yeah, but, we'll see if they can keep the momentum going. Yeah, I was impressed. I was a little skeptical at first, but, um, yeah, nice to see local families out there. But thanks so sure. much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. Take care. That was reporter Marcel Honoré with today's Reality Check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Mask or not to mask, it's mandatory in some stores and offices, and now schools are grappling with policies as they plan for the fall. As we've been highlighting the back-to-school plans for various private schools, some are requiring masks on campus, while in some areas, masks are optional. We talked to one parent who isn't keen on the idea of mandatory masks. Kimberly Hain has two sons at Punahou School. She's written letters to the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools and to Public School Superintendent Christina Kishimoto, expressing her concerns. A surgical mask, they're meant for sterile environments and to be worn short-term. They're not meant to be worn eight hours a day. You know, we're not meant to have our mouths covered all day long and prevent oxygen uptake. It actually increases your risk to respiratory infection, amongst other things. Are your sons, I don't know, reluctant to wear masks? 
You know, my kids are, are great. They're very much going to follow rules, but my younger one has had problems with asthma since he was little, and he cannot wear a mask. He does it for a short period of time, like to walk into a store, but I will be um, sending my kids to school with a pulse oximeter to measure their oxygen levels, and I will also be requesting their doctor to write them a letter because my younger one cannot. If he wears it for a long period of time, he starts having difficulty breathing. And I think there has to be consideration at the very least for children that have difficulty wearing masks, right? The, the other issue to me is when you're fondling or touching the mask all day, which is what exactly a child will do, you're completely <laughs> interfering with what the purpose is. They become like little Petri dishes on their faces. So I just think that masking prolonged all day long and in children, it, it's not realistic. And it's, it's going to be more hurtful than helpful, especially for the child wearing it. Yeah, we did get guidance early on that masks were not a good idea. And then, of course, that's changed. And then they just said, well, on, on one hand, it may increase people touching their faces because they're uncomfortable with the masks right. on, and that's not good. And the masks they put on could be dirty. Well, exactly. And I mean, I guess we'll try to wash it every day as a mom, but you know, you got to look at the science behind this too. At New England Journal of Medicine, we know that wearing a mask outside healthcare facilities offers little, if any, protection from infection. Journal of American Medical Association, face masks should not be worn by healthy individuals to protect themselves from acquiring respiratory infection because there's no evidence to suggest that face masks worn by healthy individuals are effective in preventing people from becoming ill. That was in March. New England Journal of Medicine just recently came out. I don't have the date in front of me. You know, World Health Organization. Everybody's saying, even Sarah Park, Dr. Sarah Park, our state epidemiologist, in the very beginning said she, she doesn't think that healthy people should wear masks. But again, for me, my biggest concern is that prolonged mask wearing from, by my child is going to actually increase his risk of respiratory infection, hypoxia, um, other types of illnesses like um, you know, headaches and anxiety and brain fog. It, it's going to interfere with learning. So there's a lot of cons to look at when you're doing a risk-benefit analysis. We did talk to uh, some heads of school that say, nope, you come on our campus, you have to wear a mask. And others say, well, they'll be required in some areas, mandatory in some, optional in others. Yeah. I think Punahou's looking at doing it maybe not mandatory, like for the hour, for the two hours. So they're changing their structure of their classrooms, too, for the older kids. And they're going to have really long blocks of classroom time, like two to three hours. So it's, you know, it's going to be a long time. So I, I'm I think, I hope they're going to withdraw a mask requirement while they're in the classroom. But then it's even silly, so you have to have a mask on while you're walking outside in fresh air. That, that's also silly to me. You walk around these days, if you exercise outside, no need to wear a mask. But if you enter a store or at some places of work, you have to wear a mask. Right, and I just, I wish that the CDC would just get on board with the WHO because their most recent statement says that the main modes of transmission of COVID-19 virus are direct contact with infected individual and droplets produced from coughing or sneezing. End of story. So again, screen our children before they come on campus, like do extra vigilant screening, and if they're symptomatic, keep them home. But if they're not symptomatic, the spread is minor. And, you know, and why are we ignoring the big picture here? That CDC's own number says that the overall mortality rate for everybody is 0.26%.
And the majority of these people have been in nursing homes. So we're looking at increased case numbers right now, but we're not looking at increased mortality rate. Yes, more people are being tested, but the truth is the mortality rate is decreasing. So we are looking at something similar to influenza as far as a risk to our children. In fact, influenza is more of a risk to our children as far as mortality rates go. So, so we've never done this before for flu. So why are we doing this to our schools and our kids now? That was one parent's viewpoint on the mask issue in our schools. Kimberly Hain is the mother of two high school students who attend Punahou. She hopes the issue doesn't get to the point where she would pull them out of school. out of time, but up tomorrow, we have a call-in show dealing with our kupuna during these COVID times. Do you have a story to share about your mother or father who is receiving care at a senior facility? Are you worried about their well-being? What's a loved one to do? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Oh, and email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online. Just look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 